1: This episode is sponsored by Southwestern Coaching. Southwestern Coaching has helped over 12,000 people increase their incomes by over 25% on average. As a successful salesperson, you know the importance of increasing your sales, but sometimes you might just need a little extra push and accountability to meet your goals and grow your business. Southwestern Coaching will help you increase your income through one-on-one sales and leadership coaching tailored specifically to your needs. Together we will elevate sales.
0: On today's episode, the Action Catalyst welcomes LaTanya Wilkins, diversity and inclusion expert, founder of the Change Coaches, and president of the True Star Youth Foundation Board. Wilkins partners with executives, upwardly mobile professionals, and teams, sharing her signature concept of below-the-surface leadership. Centered on creating psychologically safe relationships, empowering underrepresented employees to feel valued, and creating cultures of belonging in the workplace. Her book, Leading Below the Surface, is available now. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Action Catalyst, everyone. Today, I am very, very excited that we have Latonia Wilkins with us. She's not only very accomplished in the field of human resources, diversity, equity, and inclusion but highly educated with degrees ranging from University of Iowa to University of Manchester in England, with time spent at Yale, a number of places in between, involved at the university level, the private sector, and also the nonprofit sector. So we are delighted with your background and delighted with what you stand for. So welcome to the Action Catalyst.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Latanya. before we go into the, the tremendous work that you're involved with, I know our listeners would enjoy hearing a lot about some of the twists and turns of your life that have led you to the point of contribution that you exist in today. Would you mind sharing some of those key pivot points that maybe you couldn't tell where it was going to turn out, but then later in retrospect, this was an important move that led you to this, that led you to that, that led you to the other?
1: Yeah, so I would say I probably had two important pivot points in my life. The first one was in the early part of my career. So when I got out of college, I thought I was going to save the world. I ended up working for a nonprofit. Didn't love that. And then I ended up, Getting into business, and 9/11 happened, and and so I ended up. I didn't lose my job, but my I kind of got demoted in my job because of of the situation at the time, and so I decided to go to school, and so I ended up going back to, to business school. And you mentioned that's part of some of the degrees I have and some of the education. So that was the first first pivot point, and that opened up a lot of new opportunities. I would say my second pivot point was. Probably with like seven, eight years ago, I, I worked in leadership development and talent for many years and I was in my last corporate job and what what had happened is I'd, I'd been working in leadership development for quite some time and I felt like there was a leadership change and it wasn't going to be as fun. And so I that's when I started pondering, starting my own business. Ended up running into an old friend from another company I worked for and he introduced me to the dean at the geese college of business at the university of illinois and i ended up be, doing work doing talent and culture work for them for five years until i wrote my book and all of that and so that was another pivot point where again I, I was feeling like i wasn't really able to be as creative as i wanted to be in that last position and so i took a position that i wasn't really expecting to do and i ended up loving it, it was ended up being one of the best jobs i ever had honestly
0: Oh, that is fantastic. And you had such an educational background to get you ready for that. I'm curious, you have, I think, two masters of business administration degrees, one domestic and one from Manchester in England. What did you find some of the differences in studying, I suppose, abroad versus studying the U.S.? And what were the benefits of that for your overall worldview and perspective?
1: That's a very interesting question. So I would say that I, I ended up staying there for about a couple semesters for an exchange program. And I i never been an immigrant, I guess. Uh, I never experienced being an immigrant on a team. And I remember when, it, you know, in my, my domestic MBA program, we had domestic students and international students. So I was an international student. And my international team mainly consisted of, I think I had a couple Europeans, a couple Mexican folks. And then I had like a couple of folks from India, Malaysia, kind of spread out. And I ended up kind of teaming up or grouping with the folks that also were immigrants. So that was a very interesting perspective that I've never really had. As far as the education, that was also interesting. Because again, I think uh, the U.S. was considered an international market, and I never really experienced that before. So it, it took a lot of adjusting. Even though it was England, it was a big cultural adjustment especially with the rain every day. (laughs) That was not fun. But also, again, being part of that immigrant community and finding my place in that was was a challenge for me.
0: But I would think that's tremendously helpful to the work that you do today, with the U.S. being really a nation that is now, I believe, over 50 percent non-Native-born, or at least one generation from that. So that adds a great deal of perspective that you can now bring. Now, along the course of your career, I'm sure that you've hit some significant brick walls. What's been your experience when, and suggestions you'd make for the rest of us when you hit a stopping point that you really weren't prepared for? What are some coping strategies that seem to work for you that you could recommend to us?
1: I'm the kind of person that early in my career, I wanted immediate gratification. And I wanted to, if I was feeling uncomfortable, I'd try to find a way out meandering in the luck is what I call it. So staying in that mucky place where you don't really know what's going to happen next and sitting there and understanding what that actually means on a deeper level. I, I think what the reason why I was able to successfully navigate out of the muck is because I stayed there and I let myself stay there. And sometimes I had to stay there. I, it wasn't I didn't have a choice. It was just the way the world was moving. Things weren't happening fast enough for me. And when you're in that muck, you're in a more vulnerable state of life where you have some acceptance around, all right, I don't really know what's next. I'm okay with that since I can't control exactly what's next. These are like the three or four things that I want to look for in what's next or I want to drive towards in what's next. And so it's really having that time to do that. And on the days that were really difficult, I would sit down and, and write like a gratitude list of all you know how far I've come and everything I'd learned so far. And having the gratitude to to have taken the time to learn that and sitting in the muck. So I, I would have those opportunities. Because that's part of the process, you know, I mean, you've introduced me as a very established person, but there's, there's a lot of luck that happened in between there, between, you know, the degrees, the book, the business, all this stuff that's vital is, is having that luck time. And then also having gratitude.
0: That is a really cool insight, Latonya, and not, not easy to do, to feel gratitude when you realize you're stuck in the muck.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, Dan, and I'm sure a lot of, of listeners can relate to this, but I, I, I go back when my mom used to always say more and money, more problems, right? And it's like, hmm. you know, more growth, more problems, right? And And so it's like the more steps that you take up on your success ladder, there's going to be another problem. And so you have to practice gratitude because there's gratitude in that step before you got there. Like, you know, what helped you take that step up? And you have to have gratitude for that. You have to sit with that
0: mhm i'm I'm really curious about the concept that you call below the surface leadership. I think it's such a neat concept. Can you share a little bit more about that with us?
1: So throughout my career, I had very few leaders that were leaders that were good listeners that were relatable, that were equitable, and you know I think equity is a is a leadership skill essentially aware I didn't have very many leaders that were very aware of themselves and how they treated others or loyal leaders and and I call those real leaders in the leading below the surface concept, again, relatable, equitable, aware, and loyal. And when I was going through my career, I noticed that this 80-20 rule existed where 80% of leaders were not real leaders and 20% were. And so as I kind of went through my career, I I didn't know what to call it, but then I started um, calling them below the surface leaders and I kind of developed a whole practice around it. So below the surface leaders are three things. They are real leaders, like I just mentioned, they are also, they practice empathy, they're empathetic leaders, so that means they're good listeners. They're not even, they're not only good listeners on a person-to-person level, but also a person-to-environment level. And then the third thing they do is they create psychologically safe relationships, especially with people who are different from them. And so I, I talk a lot about this concept in my book. And um, Amy Edmondson, who actually coined the term psychological safety, wrote my Ford. Because I, I've always been obsessed with this, this concept. So I was really happy that she'd endorsed the book in that way. But it's uh, it's how do we become real leaders while listening and then building psychologically safe relationships with people so they feel like they can make mistakes and not be punished or they can bring their entire selves to a situation to work or they can they can be authentic without any repercussions. And it's just, it's not very common. And it's funny because yeah, do we need some programs? Yeah. I mean, we do need some structures and systems around hiring and promotions and things like that. But it's like organizations go all in on that stuff. They go in on all in on the what's, I call them. And then we forget about the hows, how we're treating people and and how we're retaining people. Cause we're not organizations just aren't that focused on that.
0: So maybe there's a tendency to want to check a box. Hey, we did a workshop. Yep. We brought in a speaker. It's in our policy manual. So check that box, check that box, check that box.
1: Yeah, you have to really want to do it. And again, it's a it's a personal and professional transformation that can be an individually focused or team focused. I think that a lot of organizations want to get things done fast. We want to get through things fast. That's why meandering in the muck is so important. And I, I find the same thing with diversity, equity, and inclusion. We want to do stuff fast. We want to get this hiring process done fast. We want to get the people in the door fast, but these things don't happen fast and these transformations don't happen fast. And so that's why it's it's so important to do it this way because again, then you're getting to the core of everything.
0: Now, here's a question. When you're working with a, an executive team, for example, do you get the sense that most of them, if they were asked, do you regard yourself as an empathetic person, would say, well, sure I am. But the reality is maybe they're not as empathetic as they could be either to the individual or as you say, empathetic to the environment. How do you make somebody become a little more self-aware.
1: Absolutely. There's been multiple studies out there around leaders thinking that they're more inclusive than they actually are. And there was like one study that was done that asked people if they were allies, if they identified as allies, and the vast majority did. But when you looked at if they actually practiced allyship behaviors, it was like a fraction of them, like eight to 10% actually did consistently. So yeah, we do tend to overinflate and overstate our abilities to be inclusive and empathy is a part of that. How do I get people to realize that? Well, I don't tell people what to do. I ask them to do reflection. So some of the ways that they can see that is if if it's for empathy, for example, I'll take them back to the last situation that they had with an employee that was different from them. And how do they respond to that situation? And I let them see it for themselves. Like I let them understand that they may not be responding empathetically. I also ask them to do empathy interviews and all they can do is sit there and listen, right? Mm -hmm. They can just sit there and listen and empathize. They can't jump in and they're able to see, Oh my gosh, that was so hard. I wanted to come in and I wanted to like justify and I wanted to control and they see on their own that it's really hard to sit back and listen and Put yourself in someone else's shoes without trying to find a solution. And that is what's really powerful.
0: Well, clearly you practice empathy in an everyday basis in order to know what to do and how to deal with different kinds of personalities. So you you have to be very sensitive to people, I can tell, in your role.
1: You're exactly right. That's another reason why I do I use a tool of empathy interviews a lot, because if executives do these, it's game changing. I mean, every time. I've worked with executives. And I've asked them to do this. They want, they try to find ways to kind of bake it into other types of like their HR strategy or their team strategy or their manager strategy. Usually I I ask all the leaders to interview each other or sometimes I interview them and they always have something that like a situation where they didn't, they feel like they didn't fit in and it could be anyone, right? It, it could be any race. It could be any age. Everyone has something. And so once they're able to experience that, I think they start to embody it. And I think there's also a neuroscience aspect there with like the o- oxytocin and feeling that boosts and that closeness to other people and that openness, they start seeing it as a part of leadership, but you have to be willing to do it first in order to see that. Well,
0: it's true. So reminding somebody of a time when they felt like an outsider, mm-hmm. when they felt like the one that was different. Now, you you also speak of something that you call the three terrible biases within individuals in leadership roles. Can you share a bit about those? Because that is a very powerful term.
1: Yeah. So in my book, Chapter Three is all about humans and how we are all born to exclude. And I talk about how we exclude to belong. And what I mean by that is that you know, I tell childhood stories around, hey, we all want to be part of the popular crew. And and I call it the core group in my book. We all want to be a part of this popular crew. And so we exclude other people so we can be a part of this. So, whatever we can do to get into that group, we're going to do it. Right. And we adults do this too, but it's, it's like, it's a little bit more polished. <laughs> but children, there's no polish there. They just do it. Right. And so, one of the ways that these groups stay together and keep other people out are, are these biases. And the top three that I think are the most prevalent when dealing with people who are different from you number one is affinity bias. Right. So, Affinity bias is bias that we want to be around people who are just like us. I would have an affinity bias, for example, for people that went to the University of Manchester as opposed to, you know, Boston University, right? This runs rampant, especially um, in a lot of the companies I work with, like some of which are tech companies, because they're recruiting people from the same schools. Mm. The people that went to Stanford, they have this whole Stanford crew in their company and they end up having affinity bias only for Stanford graduates because maybe three or four of them did well and they're like, you have to be from Stanford, otherwise you're not going to do well. That takes us into confirmation bias. What I just said with the Stanford example, the confirmation bias is, oh man, I hired someone from Berkeley this time and they didn't do as well as Stanford. I knew it. You know, I knew Stanford was the best. And it's the same with people who are different from us. Like You might take a chance on hiring someone from a different industry and you might say, well, wait, if I would have hired them from in the social media industry that I always do, it would have been better. So you're confirming that the reason why that person is failing is because of some reason related to what you thought it was in the first place. The third is um, in-group bias. And so this one is, um, speaking of Manchester, there's like a whole study, and I'm sure some of you know about the study, but it was done with uh, Manchester United. And what they did is they they had people basically um, simulate falling to the ground, needing help. And they found that if the person wasn't wearing a Manchester United jersey, the people didn't even stop for them. So they only stopped for people, basically, that had the same jersey on as them. There's also data that you have less empathy for people in your out group. Again, this in-group bias makes you feel like, you know, again, you are superior to the out group. Politics is an example of that, right? Sadly, you know, you have this in-group and you have this political affiliation, and no matter what it is, whatever side, whatever it looks like, that you're going to have an in-group bias towards that. And then anyone that's outside that group, you might even have empathy towards them, right? And so this is really, these, these biases, the reason why I call them the terrible three, it's because they're terrible for organizational cultures. They destroy our culture. And a lot of the time, people are on autopilot and they don't even realize these things are happening.
0: So that confirmational bias, it's sort of like, yep, I knew it. How can we overcome that one in particular?
1: I think there's two different ways. Number one, I talked about real leadership and I talked about loyalty. It's having loyalty uh, to the person first and checking yourself and saying, okay, how many times has this actually really happened? I want to be loyal and I want to give this some time. The second is uh, finding examples that are opposite. One of the ways to neutralize bias is through a practice called stereotype replacement. And what you can do is, I use the whole Stanford example, but if you're feeling that way, go back and list every single person on your team that's doing well and list what school that they came from. And actually look at the facts, like take a step back and look at the facts of what's really happening. We have to back this up with data and look at it objectively. So I strongly encourage that we take a step back. First, practice the loyalty, which is the commitment to actually get into the data and see if this is true. And then again, yeah, see like how your in-group bias may be at play again.
0: And I can see how that wouldn't be easy. You probably heard the quote by the advertising executive in the 40s that said, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. <laughs> <laughs> that's where yeah. data, that's where realization, that's where really being confronted by our team members can help a lot, it can be real eye-opening. I remember many years ago in a team meeting, inviting that kind of feedback, and everybody was very quiet when it came turn to give me feedback. They were just silent. Finally, one of the braver souls, a woman in the group said, well, Dan, the reason we're not saying anything is because we just don't know how to disagree with you. And I said, you don't know how to disagree with me. Am I that domineering? No, 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 no. You're, You're the opposite. You're just always positive, upbeat, optimistic. And if we see a flaw in something, it's hard to bring it up because you'll just overwhelm us with positivism and optimism. And that was a complete shock to my system and a complete lesson that uh, only that empathetic, I guess, forced listening could cause me to deal with. And they had to come up with some specific examples in order for me to actually buy what they were saying. But boy, that was a powerful lesson. I'll never forget that one.
1: Yeah, that seems like a defining moment for you. This is a really good example you bring up because, I mean, that's like the worst question that a lot of managers ask. What else can I do? Or what feedback do you have for me? Try to give them something more specific to respond to. Because
0: otherwise it could look like a, an open-ended invitation to disaster.
1: Yeah. And it's it's weird too. with Some CEOs that I coach, when a CEO asks for feedback, do you think people feel safe to give it to them? <laughs> I mean, come on, think about Most it. Most
0: of the time, probably not.
1: Right. Or probably not what you're looking for. So you got to be a little bit more specific.
0: Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm conscious as we talk along here, Latanya, that you are a deliberate person When faced with crisis, you talked about being in the muck and being willing to be in the muck for a little while, about being deliberate and putting on the gratitude, being deliberate and thinking through the three or four positive directions you'd like to move in and encouraging leaders that you coach to slow down a minute, take the time, don't just try to fix it, to be comfortable with the ambiguity, I suppose is what I'm hearing you say. Is there anything that you do to make sure that you keep objective when you're involved in so many lives? Do you have a morning routine or anything that you do to start your day that helps you keep on your even keel, knowing that you may have a really difficult encounter coming up that day or a tough organizational problem to deal with?
1: So my routine, it's a weekly routine. It's not necessarily a day-to-day routine, but why don't I sprinkle in both here? So every week I have a writing group. And so that's really great because I can get together with some writing friends and kind of plan the week with people. So it's almost like I feel like I'm co-working. This has been game changing for me during, you know, a time when now I'm 100 percent working from home. I mean, I, I travel for an engagement here and there. So that's one thing. Every morning I wake up around five forty-five. I go to the gym at six most mornings of the week. I make my either I'll either have matcha or mud water, or sometimes coffee. I try not to have coffee every day. The night before, I'm coming up, like what you said, on a very busy day. Sometimes now, since I'm remote, I can have several speaking engagements in a day or I can have several coaching engagements in a day. So the night before, I get myself mentally prepared for the day after. And what that means is I make sure that I have adequate adequate breaks. I go out and get sunshine for five minutes in between. I make sure that's scheduled in. I also do a little bit of morning meditation. The biggest thing is how I start the week and also how I end the week. And I, I usually end the week with something fun. You know, I'll go hang out with a colleague or something for lunch or something like that. But it's, again, start and the end of the week is, is really important. Also the start and the end of the day.
0: Right. I like that. Now, uh, many of our listeners are just trucking along in life, highly successful. We have some other people right now that are, are really broken down. They are not sure what to do what could you offer in terms of words of encouragement for somebody that really isn't sure what to do next they are stymied i kind
1: of i went through that before i wrote my book and before i started my business i was like i don't know if this is what i want my career to look like like i'm ready to be an entrepreneur i would say don't rush it you don't have to put a time limit on it it's so important to allow yourself time to what i call have a discovery tour so don't rush it. Have a discovery tour. What I mean by what's a discovery tour? Well, that means that just take on some things that you think you're interested in, but don't commit to them. Just use it as a discovery time. And when you brand it that way, or you know, or when you think of it that way, then it's more fun and exploratory than putting pressure on yourself and saying, "Oh my gosh, I have my first client and." I got to do a good job. Think of it as a discovery client, right? That where you're, you're kind of figuring out the next steps. And with that discovery tour, not only try out different types of interests, maybe read different types of books, but join all kinds of groups. I joined so many groups. Like um, I don't really love Facebook as a platform, but I love the Facebook groups. I'm also active on Clubhouse. So I joined a lot of different Clubhouse groups. To see what sticks and you'll, you'll start to find your people and your people and your community is what's going to help you form what's next, right? I'm not saying that you won't go be introspective about it as well, but I think that once you have communities are powerful and once you have those communities that are more consistent, you're going to learn things that you, you never knew that were options in your life.
0: I I love that idea. So really it's saying use, use both hands, one hand firmly on your heart, the other hand reaching out and not being in a big hurry. Tanya, thank you. Thank you so much for what you've shared with me, which is personally meaningful and what you've shared with our listeners and above all, what you do for your clients and making our world a better place every single day. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe to stay updated on everything that the action catalyst is up to. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.